interspersed between our singing. We read that most famous chapter in Isaiah, verses chapter 52, 13, all the way through the end of chapter 53. One of the most grand, clear evidences of the divine mind, God's divine plan, written hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus fulfilled it, yet so much detail and clarity about what would happen and why it would happen and to whom it would happen. And so I want to briefly examine the center verses, the, the, what is called the servant song. There are four servant songs. Bible readers have noticed towards the end of Isaiah, extended passages about a servant, and this is the last. And so briefly, we're to ask, who is this about? We know the answer, but how do we support that biblically? What is happening, and by whom, and for what purpose? Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. To whom is this about? And to any Christian, the answer is obvious. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. We read about him being pierced for our transgressions. And yet there are many today who would not recognize this as written about the Lord. Probably the, the clearest identification of this chapter and this passage with the Lord Jesus Christ comes from the audible mouth of God the Father. You see, in the prior servant song, back in chapter 50, this servant is not only referred to as the servant, but the Lord's chosen. And that title for Jesus is given by the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son, my chosen Also, Luke makes this connection clearly in Acts chapter 8. You remember the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth, and his humiliation, justice, was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him, the good news about Jesus. So it's clear this servant, this chosen one, this one who will be high and lifted up and exalted is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what then is taking place? 
What Isaiah describes here is the heart, the center of the gospel. What Isaiah describes here is the precise means by which we can be forgiven. And what he describes, as much as it includes the crucifixion, goes to something deeper and greater. The greatest suffering of Jesus was not the nails. It was not the tree. And I've heard, and I suppose many of you have heard, descriptions in detail of the agonies of Roman torturous death through crucifixion. Mel Gibson's recent movie did a fair job of demonstrating that. But that is not the chief agony of the cross. And consider this. If, if that alone was the suffering of the cross, then we have to recognize the fact that there are men in church history, women in church history, children in church history, who have gone to the cross. You can read Fox's Book of Martyrs without sweating as though drops of blood. And you'd have to conclude some men have proven to be braver in the face of the cross than our Lord. That is not the case. I believe God intentioned the cross to demonstrate the suffering and the sorrow, but it is not the heart of the suffering that's taking place on the cross. The Romans crucified Jesus at the behest of the Jews, and yet, as we zero in on the middle stanza, there are five stanzas in this passage, verses 4 through 6 comprise the middle, and so I want to look briefly. Let me read them for you again. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The chief agony of the cross was not the nails, the lashes, the crown of thorns, the mocking. And the one who inflicted the chief agony of the cross was not the Romans or Jesus' own countrymen. This text makes it clear that the chief agony of the cross and the one who inflicted it is the wrath of God delivered by God. On the cross, the Father crushed the Son. It's it's inescapable in this language. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. He was crushed our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And no other human going to an earthly cross has endured that wrath, that chastisement, that crushing. And it was that, I believe, that our Lord was praying that the cup might pass, that great drops of sweat like blood broke out on him. On the cross, in addition to the paltry and meager torture of the Romans, God the Father poured out his wrath upon the Son. He crushed him. He laid upon him our sins, and put him to grief. On the cross, one member of the Trinity 
pours out wrath on another. That's what's so amazing. It's predicted here clearly. And it was not because in eternity past the father bore some grudge against the son. No, we know even in this passage that this servant is suffering in innocence. He had done no violence, verse 9. There was no deceit in his mouth. And we know that the Lord delights in this servant. The very song begins, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. We, we oftentimes wrestle with suffering and difficulty in our lives. The father loved the son, and yet we read it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God loves his children. God loves his flock. And yet, at times, in his wisdom and in his goodness, it is his will that we, too, go through difficult times. I'll sometimes hear people tell me, God loves me and God wants me to be happy. (laughs) If, If it pleased the Father to crush his son for his purposes, we, we have no right of exemption. What is taking place on the cross is an innocent Savior bearing the sins of his people. That brings me to my last point. Why? Why would the Father be pleased to crush the Son? Why would this innocent man, this servant, why would he suffer so? And again, the text makes it abundantly clear. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Old Testament law provided a scapegoat. The priest would lay his hands over the goat and Symbolically transfer the sins of the people to it and drive it off. And it's not for nothing that Isaiah picks up sheep imagery. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This suffering servant, crushed by God the Father, was crushed not for his own guilt, for his own iniquity. No, this is the one whom the Lord delights in. It is for our sin. There can be no confusion on this point. Sadly, amongst those who call themselves Christians, there is. And so it's good for us to come back here again and look at what is called popularly penal substitutionary atonement. Penal as in is a penalty. And we wrestle with thinking God is having demands and God issuing punishment when those demands are not met. A a recent religious leader just went on record saying there is no hell because the notion of a God of wrath, God of righteous indignation is not popular these days. But you can make no sense of this chapter without seeing the Lord himself as the one inflicting the chief agony. It is a punishment borne by the Lord on the cross. It's not merely an example. 
It's not merely an idealized dream. It's not a picture of someone overcoming adversity. It is first and foremost a substitute. That's the second word, penal substitutionary atonement. A substitute, an innocent substitute suffering a penalty to make atonement. And atonement is simply an old English word for at one mint. Two parties who are in a hostile relationship, divided, come together as one. And ultimately we read that is the purpose. He, he's suffering for our sins. He is bearing our sorrows. So that, according to verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous. Because you and I are not, in point of fact, righteous. We sin. But because of this servant's death on the cross, we are accounted, reckoned by God as righteous. He shall make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sins of many. The reason this was necessary, the reason why this was God the Father's divine plan was not because he had a mean streak, but because in his love, he wanted to redeem for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the only way his righteous demands and anger at sin could be satisfied was if this servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, willingly stood in our place as our substitute took upon himself, was accounted himself as a sinner. And this is the amazing reality on the cross Jesus legally became a sinner. He is the only sinner who has never sinned. But on the cross, for those hours that God poured out his wrath, he willingly received our filth, our guilt. And God responded righteously to that. But it was done that we might be forgiven. And so we dare not lose sight of this. This is the only way a path could be made for us to have peace with God. It was at this cost. Peter, who quotes from this passage repeatedly throughout his letter, reminds us that we were not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver, but by the precious blood of a lamb. This is the means of our salvation. This is how we may have peace with God. This is how we can be accounted righteous, even though all of us have gone our own way. We have gone astray. We have turned our own way. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of of us all. In that verse we sang from the song Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted is a good reminder. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great here, may view its nature rightly here, its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. It's the word the Lord's anointed Son of Man and Son of God. So this passage, written hundreds of years before the events, before the Roman Empire existed and made crucifixion a practice, 
in explicit detail describes the servant who we now know as the Lord Jesus Christ, identified by God the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration, identified again and again and again in the New Testament witnesses. And we see that while on the cross, he, he does not merely bear the suffering that man can inflict, but is bearing the wrath of God at sin. He willingly becomes our substitute. He takes upon himself our sins and is treated as a sinner. And we see that through this means, and through only this means, may many be accounted righteous. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the only way God can be just and justifier. Other religions have a justifying God. He's just not just. He just sweeps sin under the carpet. But here, love and justice meet. And so it is good for us to commemorate this. It is good for us to soak our minds in this. It is good for us to look long and hard, not blink, and not look away, and consider the great evil of our sin. Consider the perfect payment that was made and rejoice in so great a salvation being made on our behalf. Let's pray as we prepare for communion. Lord God, let us not diminish the work of your son on the cross. Let us not minimize the cost that was paid. You did not spare your own son for us. And he did not deviate from the cross. All this was done that you might redeem for yourself a people like us. Let us be mindful of the great measures that were made that we might become reconciled to you. Let us rejoice in that and tremble. In Jesus' name, amen.